Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Caroline West. As a consumer, it's wise to be across the reason a test, procedure or treatment is recommended. But unless you have a decent conversation about this with your health provider that takes in your own personal circumstances, you may be missing out. So how do you as a consumer step in with confidence when healthcare providers are often busy and the answer's not always forthcoming? And what could health professionals be doing better? Joining me on the podcast are consumer advocates Ricky Spencer and Deb Letica to share their stories. Welcome. Paul, thank you for having me here at your wonderful show. And <laughs> it's great to be here. Fantastic. Can I start off by asking you, well, let's start with you, Ricky, how would you prefer to be addressed during this podcast? Thank you so much for asking me about my pronouns. My pronouns are they, them and her. And it's wonderful that you've taken that acknowledging of asking me about myself because it's part of the process of authenticating myself with whoever I meet and especially in healthcare settings that allows a communication to take place that really does allow me to connect with whoever I'm with so that they understand my authentic self. And pronouns for many of us in the transgender and non-binary world allows us to affirm ourselves when our paperwork don't necessarily match up with our presentation. So Medicare, doctor referral, blood tests that we might take to a clinic and may have our dead name. And there is no section at the moment that's been legislated that we have to have pronouns. So yes, it's a wonderful way of connecting and really does set up that relationship on a good stead from the beginning. Because mm, as you say, I mean, health professionals may think it's just a little thing, but for a lot of people, it's incredibly important to get that right. Oh, it's one thing that every time I go to see, whether it be a doctor or my a physiotherapist or osteopath, I always hope that they will have that initial conversation. Nine out of 10 times I initiate it and then I might get a blank look from the receptionist, but it's my way of feeling safe. And just affirming, yes, I am who I am today. This is me. And I hope it sends a message to other people around the clinic who may even be listening that it's an important way of connecting. Even if you're cisgendered, heterosexual, it reaffirms you so that well, I don't misgender you as well. So it's a two-way communication that really does allow for a wonderful connection between two human beings. And Deb, what about you? What pronouns would you like us to use during this podcast? My friends call me Deb and I like she, her, but I pick up on what Rick is saying about language, but language is not just words. It's tone, body language, facial expressions. People have got to feel safe to engage with health professionals. Yes, well, just to declare my own pronouns, she, they, her is all good with me. In fact, I'd prefer you didn't use doctor and just call me Caroline. Thank you for sharing your thoughts there. Now, both of you have very interesting stories in terms of your engagement with the healthcare system. Perhaps I could start off by asking you, Deb, to tell us a little about yourself and your involvement in the healthcare system, because I understand that you have stepped into the caring role. 
Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for the invitation to join you today to share some of my experiences. Before I start, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm joining you from today, which is Perth, WA, uh, who are the Wajuk people of the Noongar Nation, and I pay my deepest respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Yes, I never realised I was a carer, Caroline. It's not something I ever believed I would become at any point in my life. Without a doubt, it has been one of the most challenging, emotional and sometimes confronting experiences I could have ever dreamed possible. However, it has perhaps given me the greatest of life's lessons in that it doesn't always work out how you think it's going to work out. I became a carer for my Croatian mummy-in-law, who is now a frail-aged lady in her 90s, as well as my younger brother, who suffered a birth injury, which resulted in him having some learning disabilities. Stepping into the role takes a lot of courage and sometimes blind faith. Some experiences with health professionals was very positive and supportive, and sadly some not so. That's why I'm motivated to become the carer rep that I do today. Fantastic. And I guess that's given you a lot of insights. We'll certainly come back to perhaps you sharing more about your experiences. And if I can just go to you, Ricky, I understand that you're managing a few chronic conditions. Yes. And my journey was sort of intertwined with having physical and mental health issues. I've had a lot of contact with different agencies over 20 to 30 years And then later in my life, going through my gender affirmation and using other specialists in another scope to deal with hormone treatments, um, brain imaging, regulating my testosterone levels. So it's been like a complex journey. And as you mentioned, and as Deb's mentioned, trying to navigate all the systems and trying to make sense of what are my rights in terms of what medications do I take, what impact it's going to have on my body, has kind of led me to a deeper reflection on what are the core ways I can move forward to make sure that in my future and my later years that I'm more in control of what I'm doing in terms of managing my health so I have a better quality of life. In terms of preparing for an appointment, what sort of things have you found particularly useful? Well, for myself, it's, uh, I, and that's probably putting my teacher hat on, I follow the principles choosing wisely where I kind of sit down and I write myself out a list. These are the questions I'm going to ask. Now, if it's my endocrinologist, I am going to ask to make sure what are my HRT levels. I have a condition with a tumour my pituitary tumour, so I need to also see what my blood tests have revealed. So I always make sure whichever specialist I'm seeing, I make sure I tailor the critical questions that I need to ask, my dosage levels of medication to, so that anything that props up into that consultation process, whatever emotional outcomes there might be or something that I wasn't expecting, I'd be advised At least I have a series of questions that if I'm not feeling well, I could at least pass over to the clinician and say, could you please address that for me so I don't forget. And also for some of us who have memory impairments, it does help us remember what we're going there. Otherwise, leaving the setting and then thinking, oh, I forgot to get my script. Oh, I forgot to ask what this will do. Oh, where do I get my blood test done? So it gives me a sense of control and ownership over my body. I'm a doctor and even when I go to the doctor, I find it's helpful to have a list because I get easily distracted 
And I find that sometimes I can leave the appointment and I go, good grief, I didn't ask about the main thing I was interested in. So it's really interesting that you say that. Deb, does that resonate with you too? Yes, uh, Ricky, you put that so eloquently, spot on. The Choosing Wisely five questions I've found as well, and I really wish I had found them earlier. It would have made it so much easier. But it it sort of focuses my brain on, um, you know, I need to see my GP about a certain issue. What do I really need to know? And it makes me realise that if, if I really am not sure about something and I think I need a bit of time to clarify things and have a really longer conversation, then I'll book a double appointment. And I, I think by using the Choosing Wisely questions, I've found that it sort of balances up the playing field a little bit. And the doctors appreciate you using it because they know that you're sort of coming in and you're prepared and you're focused on your health rather than not being really focused. And then I don't go home and, and think I forgot this, that, or the other and worry that I then I have to make another appointment. So it sort of makes it much easier for me to have a conversation with my doctor. And I think they should be everywhere. I think the Choosing Wisely flyers should be on every reception desk and practices everywhere should be Choosing Wisely friendly practices and, and encourage consumers to ask questions. And it's okay to do that. There'll be some people listening who are totally across what Choosing Wisely is and some people will be quite new to the concept. So if you had to summarise what was in those questions around Choosing Wisely, do you have your little wallet card there with the questions on it? (laughs) Yes, I have my little wallet card that is now firmly implanted in my purse along with my loyalty cards for anything else I use. It's a really handy little reference. It is so empowering. Do you want to talk about the five questions? Yeah, why don't we just go through them? Because it's kind of interesting to remind ourselves, because I think it gives us a great template across the board for consumers and for healthcare professionals to just remind ourselves what we really need to cover. So the first one is, do I really need this test treatment or procedure? And I guess that's the starting point in the conversation, isn't it really? Yeah. Yeah. And what are the risks? Are there simpler, safer options? What happens if I don't do anything? What are the costs? And I know that often health practitioners are very time poor. They may sort of race through something and people may not always have the confidence to speak up. Caroline, if I might add, for some of us who are on a disability support pension, so for me, it's really a financial issue as well, because I need to know if I'm having any tests, I need to know what are the costs associated with having that test. And as an example, when I have an MRI test, and I remember thinking, luckily, I had those five questions because I did go through that with my endocrinologist, I remember, and my physician. And I asked them, do I need to have this MRI? And they said, yes, because your elevated blood levels. And if we don't, there is probably something that we need to check that's not quite right. And then, of course, my other fear was that, well, what are the risks? What if I don't do it? Because I wanted to have that opportunity to make that decision for myself. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm going in this enclosed machine. Is my brain going to be radiated? You know, and I might, it might sound silly to some people, but for me, when I'm under that stressful situation, and I mentioned before that emotional state, I needed to hear that from these professionals that I'm going to be okay. And I needed to know the risks because I needed to prepare myself emotionally for that procedure. And when I had that card and I was nervous, I was shaking, I was actually able to have something to logically give me a pathway 
of explicit questions that I could ask. So as what Deb mentioned, I don't go away and then think, oh my God, I should have asked that or I should have asked that and there'd be more stress. So that was so important. And then, you know, knowing are there any simpler, safer options? And obviously there wasn't, I had to do it. And then for me, most importantly, what are the costs? Because I count every single penny, you know, and for some people who are listening might understand that for some of us, you know, getting to the provider costs us money. And then we think about all oh, other out-of-pocket expenses because sometimes for Medicare, it requires us to pay a payment first and then we get something back. And for some of us, we don't have that affordability option. So I have to make sure I either borrow money or I save up my pennies before I have that test. So it's all that pre-planning. And that's the one thing I would probably add to that list of chose wisely that I've modified and adapted to suit my needs is that I always put in, do I have enough funding? You know, when do I get paid? So when I'm booking my appointments, I align them with my pension days so that my booking doesn't stress me out further that I don't have enough. And that kind of supports my way of navigating a difficult procedure. And it allows me then to be in a better frame of mind to take on whatever procedure is happening. Deb, do you find that practitioners tend to be receptive when you present them with the five questions? Absolutely. Absolutely. I had to get a new GP recently and I wanted one closer to home that's easy for me to access. Because I've become involved with Choosing Wisely, I actually took The first appointment I had was sort of like I was double checking that the GP was on board with what the Choosing Wisely initiative is all about. And I asked them about it. And we had a really deep conversation about, you know, I want to be in control of my health. I want to understand it better. Um, I want to be able to book an appointment with my GP that allows me the time to get to know you. Um, So I want a relationship with one GP that I can build a a confidence level with and I know that you're going to be there when I need you. And it was really empowering to know that that GP understood what Choosing Wisely was about and encouraged me to use the question. So, yes, Mm. absolutely. Um, It levels the playing field out. I've used it all sorts of places, even with my physio, my dentist. I just wish I had found it much earlier than I did. It would have been a different outcome to several appointments I had to endure. I think that's a really good expression, you know, levels the playing field out because I think that often consumers, patients, they feel that there's a power imbalance, that the healthcare provider knows their stuff. If they recommend something, it must be in their best interest. There must be evidence behind it. And I think that it's really important that there is shared decision-making and that people get involved with understanding what's going on. And you're right, you, you do need time, don't you, in the consult. And also the option of costs, because sometimes the practitioner might just assume that you have the affordability to undertake that procedure. But then after when we're asking that question about the costs, they might think, oh, hang on a minute, I'll ring up and see if there's this other space somewhere that bulk bills that procedure. You know, you may have to travel X amount of time to get there. Are you prepared to travel? And then it gives me the option that, you know, for myself, I don't mind traveling because I have the time. I don't have limited time to get somewhere. I can make time for that because if I can save 50 or $60, that to me is the difference for my living costs. And perhaps a lot of people who might be listening, you know, that's a 
a question that they didn't think about asking, that it's okay to take that stigma. It's okay to talk about affordability when it comes to your health and accessing a service. I think that's really important to keep affordability at the front of your mind because I think you're right. A lot of people think, oh, you're on disability support pension or another pension, getting cheaper pharmaceuticals, for example, and it all adds up. And a lot of creams and things like that are not even subsidised, just getting from A to B and the cost of transport. And I think also the cost, not just financially, but the cost of a medication in terms of side effects, that if you don't really tease that out, and if I as a practitioner don't really listen, there may be things that are really important to you. I mean, if I think about you, I think disclosed before, Ricky, that you'd had mental health problems, but there are some medications that have some pretty unwelcome side effects. Oh, yes. Caroline, there was one medication that I was on for over eight years. And, you know, when I was first put on that medication, I was very unwell. So I was uh, hospitalized at the time. So I had very little understanding of the long-term side effects of the medication. Because remember, for some of us, when you're in an unwell state and you're medicated, you know, or sedated, I should say, you're very much at the mercy of the practitioners and the support around you to keep you well. And the problem is they give you a lot of verbal information, but there's nothing written down at that space so that, you know, you're in a daze. And what I've found for myself, it becomes habit forming. So I just take the tablet. And then when I would go to my practitioner, this is going back a couple of years ago, uh, as an outpatient, I would say, oh, I'm not feeling well. And then one of the medication I was on, I wasn't advised that it would cause me to overeat and binge eat. Now, this impacted my health because my weight has now doubled, doubled and a half. So I was at one stage when I first became ill, I was say like 85 kilos, you know, and I went up to about 145 kilos in a couple of years. And that then had an adverse effect on all my health. And I remember saying at the time, my previous practitioner and psychiatrist, I don't feel well. I keep vomiting in my sleep because it was that sedative that the tablets I was on. And I remember the thing that stood to me and made me upset was I was told, um, Ricky, you are a patient. You know, we're doing what's best for you. Don't worry about it. Just go, go back, go home, just go to sleep. And basically it was like, go home, go to sleep and just wait to die for the next 20, 30 years. And I thought to myself after a while, no, I want to live. I want to have some quality of life. So I then changed practitioners. And for me, being a transgender person and my previous doctor wasn't able to support me in that because they thought that was just part of my mental health. I don't know if they thought psychosis or some delusional thinking. I went to, for me, it was an LGBTIQ medical service who affirmed me. And within a couple of visitations, I was sent through to the appropriate supports And I felt so affirmed and they helped me come off that medication. But I drove that journey. You know, I explained that, look, I don't want to be on a thousand milligrams a day. So we worked out a plan together that suited me. I reduced it every week and I would go in and say, yes, I've done this and done this to the point where I came off it and I wasn't sick and I feel so alive. And although I've been off it now for a year and a half, I still have the effects of it on my body. But you know what? I'm so grateful and I'm so proud of myself that I took those steps. And a part of it was, in fact, 
fact, being involved with the consumer health information and then choosing wisely where, hang on a minute, I have some rights. I can say, no, I don't like these side effects. Can I come off this medication? What is an alternative medication that will allow me to control my eating and help me manage my health better? So it's really taking control and not being frightened to say to someone in authority, look, I don't feel that this medication is working well with my body. Can we try something else, please? I hear that all the time from patients, especially around weight gain that's associated with some of the medications used in mental health. And the other one that I hear a bit about, which I think is often not talked about enough, is sexual dysfunction off the back of some of the medications, particularly the antidepressant class and others where it can affect sexual function. And if people are not stepping in and Asking the questions of their practitioner, they may not be aware that that's the cost of some of these medications in terms of side effects, and that's a whole other area. And I think for some of us who are gender non-conforming or from the LGBTIQ community, like my previous doctor who worked in a very middle-class heteronormative suburb or cisgendered, would never ask me that question, nor did psychiatrists when I was hospitalised years ago. So it's almost as though they were too afraid to even ask that type of question to someone who identified as queer because they themselves were not comfortable because perhaps in their lens, they thought, well, this person's not married, so they don't have to worry about having a sexual relationship. It doesn't matter. It's not important to them. And even, I guess, for a single person, I should say it's important. We all are sexual beings and we have a right to be able to feel pleasure and and have that. But we need that opportunity. We need to have that choice. And well-being isn't just eating and sleeping. It's also sexual health and, and functioning. And I think that should be something that, you know, as consumers, we're not afraid to ask that question. And if the doctor or practitioner is uncomfortable, then perhaps it's them that they need to work through, not us. Exactly. Deb, from your perspective, what's it like being an advocate as a carer? Because you've probably sat there advocating on behalf of your brother or your mother-in-law. What's your impression of what that's like and how these choosing wisely questions can be of value? Choosing wisely questions to my absolute delight, were available in different languages. And Croatian is one of them. So I think if we're talking about empowering consumers and carers from culturally, linguistically and diverse groups, they are the go-to to enable people. There's no barrier to people to use them. They're available in different languages, which is really helpful for people to understand that it is okay to ask questions. But also, if a person is just sitting there and nodding their head and saying, yes, 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 they'll go home. And if they're not comfortable with something because they feel like they've been dismissed, which is what Ricky was talking about, they won't follow the advice that the doctor's just given them. They'll go home and they'll just go back to what they're doing because it won't fit into their life or they're worried about something and that questions weren't answered. So if you're going to talk about shared decision-making and informed consent, it is vital for a consumer to feel safe in their environment to ask questions and engage with any healthcare professional. You know, that's just a basic right of human beings to feel safe enough to ask questions. And that doesn't always happen as well as it should. 
Yeah, I'm hoping that choosing wisely is genuinely creating a cultural shift amongst consumers and also health professionals so that we can have these frank conversations around whether a test procedure is actually required and what the evidence is. And particularly when you're dealing with vulnerable groups who are perhaps in an aged care facility, those who are living with dementia, who perhaps have lessening ability to fully understand the entire scope of what's being presented. I think that it's great to have that framework to help us in these areas. And also having a conversation with your loved ones or carers and friends to say, look, this is what's working for me. And I know in my advocacy, working in health, in trans health, and working with young people especially, it's something that I encourage teachers to use in schools as a good platform for young people to then show their parents because they can learn from each other look mum dad these are the great steps you can take to make sure that every time you see a a practitioner um, these are sort of the questions that will help our health get better and even for kids with disabilities carers and parents who are kind of struggling sometimes with going to medical appointment to medical appointment it gives you a sense of control when sometimes procedures become you know, so compounded by one process to another that you can kind of sometimes step back a bit and say to the physician, hang on a minute, can we go through a couple of things, please, and go about how much will this cost? What are the side effects? Are there alternatives? It helps you frame that and takes you away from the emotional overwhelming space to a more centered place where then you can then have something tangible that when you walk away, you think, oh, okay, I'm going to do this. So when I get home, I'm more likely to, or the child or my partner or my lover may have a reaction of vomiting. So I'll prepare for it. So it gives us a sense of preparation of what to expect to from a procedure or a change in medication that's going to result. Hmm. And, and I guess for people listening who are keen to know more about Choosing Wisely, you can go to the Choosing Wisely .org.au website and there's plenty of resources there for consumers and health professionals to check out. I think it's really useful. I know that we've talked today, um, Ricky and Deb, about shared decision-making in this sense that consumers get more involved and more empowered in terms of stepping forward and becoming part of the conversation. So we talk about it. Is it actually happening, do you think? Oh, boy. (laughs) Look, I think in some spaces it is, but my concern is for people, I guess, and I can only speak from my own lived experience or groups that I run within the trans and gender diverse community, that there is still a lot of hesitation and limited understanding of our choices, our bodies, and to dealing with the stigma of coming into a position of, I need treatment, I need support, Uh, I need you to see me as who I am, not what the card on the Medicare card or the referral sheet is presenting. Ask us the questions. We need to take that journey. But medical practitioners need to understand that for some of us, it's a learning. Help us to help you to help us. I can't remember how it goes, but it's something like help us become more Um, what's the word for informed patients who can then say yes doctor this is what I need um, but I'm really worried about my weight or I'm really worried about my sexual functioning will this impact me on this way or that way but it also starts again Caroline from the first minute of your reception staff you know having that welcoming 
affirming space to come in and really welcome us. That We know everyone is time, Paul, like in terms of you've got 10 minutes, but let's make that 10 minutes our time, you know, connect and not rushing us through and really affirming us. And I, and I would love to see every centre have some sort of signage and even like a, a little car that people can take into the consulting room to help guide us. And I could see that as a wonderful way that reception staff could get to know the new patient or existing to say, hey, we've got this new system to help better your time with the doctor or the physiotherapist or whatever practitioner to really have your needs met. Have a look at this. This can help guide you your questioning for today and let us know what you think. So if we can all be part of that journey of education. So and then the better outcomes for everybody because then the doctor knows exactly what the person is feeling, what their needs are. The person feels that they've been listened to. They're going to feel better and a better position to understand what happening to them and take ownership of whatever the information is in front of them they can walk away and at least think ah this is what's going to happen and then next time they come in it becomes just a, a general part of the process of coming in and not spending the perhaps 10 minutes so fumbling around <laughs> to ask oh, okay i'm doing this having those questions really maximizes your time with your medical practitioner I think that's a really good point too, Ricky, about having a welcoming space. If we look at commercial centres, like look at a shopping centre, they spend a lot of time and money thinking about the foyer. That mm. greeting, that sense of people feeling, oh, I'm pleased to be here is incredibly important. If we translate that to the consumer experience and health, how you're greeted, how you're introduced, how you're included as soon as you arrive makes a colossal difference to your engagement. I'm not suggesting we become like shopping centres, but what I'm saying is that it's in the design of the experience. And we need to learn about designing an experience that's inclusive and engaging, don't we? Caroline, we also need to talk about the architecture. <laughs> Hello, I'm a bigger woman. I need a chair that I can fit into. So if we can have the chairs a bit bigger, more accommodate, not these little plastic things that are so uncomfortable for some of us who have back injuries, make them a little bit more comfortable and allow people who have wheelchairs to navigate, create a sense of feeling safe and comfort. Because if you create a little bit of comfort, it's going to alleviate a little bit of our anxiety because sometimes the spacing and the toilets, you know, having toilets which are clean, which smell nice, make sure that toilet paper is always supplied after every use. These are little things that will really make a difference. And for us, we do remember because we're always looking around. So sorry to butt in, but that was something one of my biggest things that I always look at. Am I going to fit into the seat? Is there enough seating for me? Will I be able to get off the chair? Is the toilet accessible? Fantastic. And Deb, from your perspective, is something like a card or something like that at the front desk going to be of use to help guide the questions? What are your takeaways? The biggest gift you can give someone is knowledge. And if you empower people with knowledge, it's a gift that's going to last a lifetime. So those flyers should be on every reception desk. It should be the first thing I see when I walk in there. And Ricky's right, it is an experience right from the time that you check in or arrive at your appointment to the time that you leave. 
It needs to be welcoming and reassuring and um, it's a win-win situation for both the healthcare professional and consumers and carers. You know, we've got to see the humanity in each other and the kindness. Small random acts of kindness do amazing things to increase the engagement and people feeling comfortable, especially with baby boomers or people from different backgrounds, different cultural beliefs. It just levels the playing field and it's a win-win And it's much more pleasant for everybody. And far more pleasant for health professionals to work in. So it's more pleasant for everyone all around. And that sense of sharing the kindness too, I think, is really important. Having kind interactions that are respectful. And I think from our end of things as health professionals, we need to be listening more. And I think you've both shared your stories so well on that. And hopefully there are a lot of things that people can take away from this podcast and reflect upon. So I really appreciate both of you spending your time with us today. And that's all we have time for, sadly. But if you'd like any more information or access to any resources, go to the homepage of NPS Medicine Wise. And if you're a healthcare professional, you can also check our website for access to CPD points. I'm Dr. Caroline West. I look forward to you joining us next time. Bye for now. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS Medicine Wise website at nps.org.au.